Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And... Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Father, as we enter Your Word this morning, I just pray that You would teach us well, as only You can. That You would bring insight and understanding to the words. That You would increase our revelation, Lord, the revelation of this truth to us. Lord, I I still marvel no matter how many times I come to a passage of Scripture, no matter how many times I read it, it is always fresh, always new, always living and active. And so as we study these things, may Your Word be living and active, a sharp two-edged sword among us. And may it, Father, not only bring revelation today, but increase our faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. Humanity is the only species on earth that is fascinated by fame. It's just people. Other creatures, true, have their pecking orders or their power structures. You know, they're alpha males. They have their sense of dominance. But we alone in all the world recognize fame and glory. You know, other creatures will do things even in acknowledgement, the Scriptures tell us, even in acknowledgement of God as Creator by their simple creation, by their action. You know, we even talk sometimes about the trees lifting up their branches in honor to God because they were created to do such. But fame and glory, that is something that is something that only human beings comprehend and focus on. If I say, for example, what's in Cooperstown, New York? <laughs> the Baseball Hall of Fame. See, many of you immediately knew that. How about Canton, Ohio? Football. Pro Football Hall of Fame. Cleveland? Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right on. <laughs> Hollywood, California? <laughs> Nothing, I hear. That's good. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Because movie stars could always use more recognition. There are other less notable halls of fame around the world. In fact, too many to count. In Alexandria, Virginia, for example, there's the Inventors Hall of Fame. Rochester, New York has the National Toy Hall of Fame. That sounds fun. Long Beach, Washington, the World Kite Museum and Hall of Fame. Las Vegas has the Pinball Hall of Fame. Phoenix, Arizona has the Hall of Flame. Fire Museum is the National Firefighting Hall of Heroes. Chattanooga, Tennessee. I kid you not, the International Towing and Recovery Hall of Fame. (laughs) There's a Circus Hall of Fame. There's a Scottish Engineering Hall of Fame. An Insurance Hall of Fame. There's even a Polka Hall of Fame. Hundreds if not thousands of such places of honor and distinction that exist throughout the country, throughout the world, because we desire fame and we admire the famous. But it was God who said in Isaiah 48 verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? God alone never acts in terms of the fame of another, the glory of someone else. He acts in terms of His own name. For His own name's sake. And because of that grand and glorious reality, I can only think of one hall of faith. 
Many halls of fame, one hall of faith, and it's right here in Hebrews 11. It's been called, and I think rightly so, the great hall of faith. In this hall, as we walk this hall together over the next couple of Sundays at least, and on Wednesday night, we will see 16 historical figures, historical portraits, if you will, in the hall. Lives lived by faith for the fame and the glory of God. You can break them down into groups. There's the antediluvians, or the the pre-flood folk. That's Abel and Enoch and Noah. The patriarchs are another grouping of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then, of course, you have the deliverer Moses, the conspirator Rahab. You have the judges Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. The king, David. The prophet, Samuel. All the prophets are not named but listed together as a, as a group. And then there's a group of the anonymous faithful that you read about, verses 33 through 40. And finally, one more distinctive unnamed group in all of this list. Some of the names are pretty obvious. They should be. You would expect a Moses to be in the hall of faith. You would expect Abraham, the father of faith, to be there in the hall as well. And they are. But some of those names, some of those listed here in the Great Hall of Faith are not only surprising, they are shocking. There will be some names, a couple we're going to take a look at next Sunday. You'll say, how did they get in? (laughs) Are you serious? They're examples of, of faith? And yet they are. It's a remarkable hallway to walk together, and I'm excited to do so. But all of these listed, whether named or anonymous, all of these listed have the single distinction in verse 38 of being those of whom the world was not worthy. Let me tell you something about value and worth. It is not found in trying to increase it. It is found in bringing glory and honor to Jesus. These were those of whom the world was not worthy because their self-worth wasn't their highest value. Fame wasn't their focus. No, it was faith. Faith in God. Because as you all know, Jesus Christ is the same. Amen. And it is His fame, His glory that is the focus. Faith in Christ changes everything in our lives. It takes away the rush for glory and and the, the seeking after fame. By faith, we come into a whole new reality. By faith, we understand why we're here at all. By faith, we join those of whom the world was not worthy. Now, what's wonderful here at the end of this amazing sermon, the pastor ties it all together with great practicality. Talk about Wednesday night, but the first ten chapters are all the they're the doctrinal teaching. And now we come into the practical teaching in the last part of the sermon. And he could have ended it at the end of chapter ten very easily, tied it all up very nicely, talking about all the, the ancient things and bringing so much of the Hebrew scriptures to bear. He could have ended right there. He chose not to. He goes further, and we are so blessed by God that we have chapters eleven, twelve, and thirteen. Because after bringing all of this together, he now focuses on our response to what Jesus has done. Our response to our great high priest. Our response to the once and for all sacrifice. Remember, Jesus is both. And our response has come to be known as the three virtues. The three virtues of Christianity. And here they are. Chapter 10, verse 22, if you look back says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. He goes on saying, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Faith, hope, and love. Now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. I know I'm repeating myself, but these are the virtues. 
In chapter 11, we see faith exemplified in the great hall of faith. In chapter 12, we'll see, we'll note, hope verified. And finally, in chapter 13, we experience love applied. And that's the outline for the rest of our study through Hebrews. Faith exemplified, chapter 11, hope verified, chapter 12, and then love applied, chapter 13. Now, for this morning, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 1 of chapter 11 says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Men of old is presbyteros. It's that same word that's translated elders in other places. The focus here, the context here is not elders of old so much as as men of old. It's looking back to those who have gone before, the forefathers. That's the context and indicates this. And verse 2 hints at where he's going with the whole rest of the chapter. For by faith, the men of old gained approval. And we'll see this begin to play out in the rest of the chapter. But before we get there, faith is marvelously defined for us. Now, if if you've read through the entire Bible, if you've studied it this far, and you land in Hebrews 11, by now you ought to have a picture of faith. You ought to have some idea of what faith really is, what it's all about. But the Hebrew writer brings it to bear for us, explains it to us, and defines it faith. First of all, the word faith in the Hebrew is pistis. It's used 22 times in Hebrews 11 alone. And this, this word is simply, it means a strong and welcome conviction of belief. We see it applied that way. We see it lived out that way. And the predominant idea of faith is trust. Trust. Peace is a welcome conviction of belief. But he says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That word assurance. As applied in this sermon, it's hypostasis. Hypostasis is actually used three times, one of them right here. It is the, the assurance of things hoped for. What does that mean? It's two words in the Greek, hypostasis. Stasis, which means uh, uh, to stand or, or a place to stand. And then hypo, which means beneath. So hypostasis is to stand beneath. Assurance is that which we stand on. It's that which is beneath us as we take our stand. So the word is described as a substructure, a foundation, and it's used figuratively as well as literally. And we know that because of how it's applied right here in the sermon. The other two examples, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14 says we all have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now that's in the figurative sense, our assurance, hypostasis as a picture of being assured, we're holding fast, we're standing firm. That's the figurative sense. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 gives us the literal sense of the word where it says, He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His Hypostasis. I thought that was an amazing application. Because we see that translation, He is the exact representation, Jesus that is, the exact representation of God's nature, or of God's being, but He uses the word hypostasis, so in the literal sense, it's substance. That Jesus is the substance of God. And so he says our faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That is, it's the substance of our hope. It's what makes hope solid. It's it's what our hope stands on. The King James translation even translates this here in verse 1, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, and rightly so. So it's as solid as a substance, and it's as sure as, as a conviction, the assurance of our hope. Colossians 2.17 tells us that the substance belongs to Christ. Our assurance of faith, then, is in the nature of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. If you are ever feeling uncertain, then look to Jesus. Because He's the substance. He is sure. 
If you ever don't know what to do, and we've been talking about this quite a bit the last few weeks, if you're ever uncertain about a moral decision, how to behave, how to act in a given situation, look at the substance of your faith. Jesus. Look into the character of God and do that. Do who He is, you might say. Our assurance of faith. If you're taking notes, you might jot this down. I'll give you just three things to know, three kind of points as we go through this this morning. And the first one is that faith is the substantive foundation of hope. So using the word both ways that it's used there, it is both substance and it is foundation. It's the rock-solid, substantive foundation of our hope. Now, Friday night, I got the privilege again of speaking with Connect. And spending some time with them, and, and we were talking about some of these things. In fact, we jumped ahead and picked up in verse 32 and, and did some of the stuff at the end of the chapter. And that teaching, which is kind of an additional teaching to what we're doing in Hebrews, is available online and you can pick that up and listen to it. But one of the things we talked about was those who say that there is no such thing as God. And truly, talking about atheism, those who have faith in nothing. It is still faith. Okay, uh, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, uh, professor, he said, faith is the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. <laughs> really? Okay, that's ironic, Mr. Dawkins, because your faith is in nothing. You believe that there is nothing. You declare that there is nothing. The substance of his faith is nothing comes to nothing. The atheist, yes, does have faith, but it's nothing to stand on. There's nothing there. This faith, faith in Jesus Christ, is a hypostasis. It is solid. It is foundational. It's a substructure on which we stand, and the Bible says as much. 1 Corinthians 3.11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Which is why every teaching in Hebrews we have stopped and said He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's the foundation. He is our surety. He is the assurance of all that we hope for. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter quotes Isaiah the prophet from Isaiah 28.16. He says, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The assurance of things hoped for. That's faith. And and faith is the conviction of things not seen. The word conviction is elenkos. And it very simply is translated proof. It is the proof of the unseen. Now that's really cool because what we're about to go into through this chapter is the proof We see by the faith of all of these individuals, indeed by our own faith, that which is unseen starts to be proven as actual and tangible, as substantive and foundational. Faith is proof. It is the conviction of things not seen, of things unseen. It's the proof of the unseen. That's the second thing to note about faith. Faith is the proof of the unseen. Now you've got to stay with this thought for a minute because it's huge. By faith, verse 3, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. Uh, A little side note there. Who's the Word of God? Jesus. Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God in the beginning, and the Word was God. Remember, John tells us in John chapter 1, all things were created through Him and by Him, and, and nothing was created without Him. And so, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. That is the spoken Word of God as He created, as He said, let there be light. And it is the actual living Word of God who is Jesus Christ. The worlds were made by Jesus. But He says, we understand the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen, that is all around us, was not made out of things which are visible. Faith is the proof of the unseen. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That word created is bara. It's a significant word in the Hebrew because bara means to make something from nothing. That's the literal understanding of the word. And God doesn't borrow, he borrows. 
He doesn't use something that's already there. And by that translation, by the way, we create nothing. Everything that we make, everything that our hands touch, it's, it's putting together, it's using something that was already here. We have never created anything. We have emulated creation. We have been creative, but only with that which has been given to us. God alone creates something from nothing. And what has been made, what has been made leaves us without an atheistic foot to stand on. Simply what has been made. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That is, anyone who would try to deny the existence of God. You're without excuse if you will open your eyes and walk the hiking trails of the Northwest. Stand on the peaks of the Cascades. You know, swim in the lakes and the rivers around here. Pay attention to the beauty in the heavens. These things are not without Maker. These things are standing proof of what is not seen. Because they could not exist otherwise. Faith is proof of the unseen. You know, people believe in all kinds of things they can't see. Regardless of your convictions, regardless of your religious, I guess you could say, affiliation, regardless of what you claim to be, you know, your life's focus, everybody believes in things we can't see. Dawkins himself does. The atheist believes in all kinds of things that are unseen. I'll give you an example. The atom. The, and not atom, A-D-A-M, but the atom as an ant. Okay? A-T-O-M. The atom is invisible to the naked eye. It's made up of subatomic particles that we cannot see at all. Oh, we have different microscopes and there's technology that's come along to help a bit, but we still can't see subatomic particles. What we can see is their, their shadow or, or their implication. But we learn that these particles, they're made up of an invisible energy that science calls quarks. It's kind of a quirky view of things, I think. There are six kinds of quarks. Up, down, charm, strange, top, and bottom. <laughs> these things in, in nuclear physics, and I trust me, I'm way, way out of my depth here when we're talking about nuclear physics. I, there, there's one I'll introduce to you in just a moment who knew a lot about nuclear physics and he will surprise you. But in nuclear physics, there's a thing called the nuclear cross-section. The nuclear cross-section of a nucleus that is within the atom, uh, the nuclear cross-section is used to determine the probability of whether or not a nuclear reaction will occur. All with me here? (laughs) Many of you know, and I mentioned this for one reason, there are a lot of you here who know what the standard unit of measuring a nuclear cross-section is called. A barn. I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, 11 years spent worshiping in a barn, we should know this. <laughs> if you need help with these things, thinking about quarks and subatomic particles and things that truly, even today, we can't see. We talk about things like, you know, this podium is solid. And the scientific reality is, no, it's not. It is made up of particles that are moving so fast that they make it appear solid to us. The chairs that you're sitting in are fast-moving subatomic particles. <laughs> That's a little, a little shaky. <laughs> so, you know, before the end of the teaching, you know, if Susie just goes down, we'll understand. <laughs> All these solid things that we are sure, and we say, oh, I see that, I can believe in that. Well, you're believing in something you can't see. In its essence. And if you need a little help with all of this nuclear cross-section nuclear physics and quarks, just ask the big Galilean fisherman, Peter. Because Peter knew. Peter understood. Let me read to you something here. This is out of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Speaking again of faith that proves the unseen, listen to what Peter said. This is Peter! Alright, if you need any help understanding who Peter is... This is the guy whose foot spent most of his time in his mouth. (laughs) 
kept going to the doctor with severe cases of athlete's tongue because he couldn't keep his mouth shut and because he kept blurting things out. And, and Peter just, you got to love him because he just wanted to know. He wanted to understand. He's always stepping in it. That's Peter. And yet listen to the scientific accuracy of what the big fisherman wrote. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements, he now says it a second time, the elements will melt with intense heat. And that's exactly what nuclear fission is. That's exactly what the atom bomb, that's where the element intensely blows up, melts with intense heat. Peter says, this is what the end, this is how the world ultimately will be destroyed. This is why I'm not concerned with man's definition of global warming, because that's global warming. (laughs) The elements, because what's contained in the element is so volatile, so explosive, yet unseen. And as we've talked about before, within the nucleus of the atom, there are particles in there, the neutrons, the protons, they shouldn't be existing together. They should, by all accounts, blow up, except for what science calls the strong nuclear glue. What is it that holds all these things together? Well, you know the Bible tells us Jesus holds it all together. But this word elements here fascinates me. It's stoikion in the Greek, and it literally is the building block. When he says elements, he's talking building blocks. The same word is used of the alphabet. The same word is used to describe things that are unseen by the naked eye, unseen even by the most powerful of nuclear telescopes. Things that are unseen, we can't see them, but we know they're there because we see their effects, the elements, the most basic of things. And Peter says, Peter says, the earth will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed. Who had any idea that Peter was a nuclear physicist? (laughs) don't worry science may someday catch up and I love this about the word of God and I do not say this with a shred of arrogance because I didn't write this book but I love that the word of God is so far ahead of the greatest thinking of man that the most brilliant scientists across all history and I'm talking faith believing scientists and those who did not the great scientists are always discovering what the Bible has already declared to be true and we see this over and over we're talking again about faith as proof of that which is unseen well what did Jesus say he said in John twenty twenty nine, because you have seen me have you believed blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Faith, by the way, also recognizes a certain something from nothing that is even more wonderful than the unseen in the elements. And that is, Psalm 51 verse 10, what David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Yes, the word create there is bara. It's a profound thought that God doesn't come along and refurbish the human heart. He creates it new. He doesn't just restore a sick heart to health. No, He says in Ezekiel 36-26, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And the, the picture there, the indication is a beating, pumping, thriving, living spirit. A new heart. Therefore, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come, which should tell us, believers in Jesus, it should tell us Christians, that we are not living the old life fixed up. The old life is done. Let it go. The old life is over. Let it die. God is doing a new thing. 
So all that to say everyone believes in things they can't see, Jesus just says, I want you to believe in me. Because I will do the most wonderful unseen thing in all of your history, and that is give you a new heart. You know, often we start to believe because of another person's faith. You know, we, we start to believe in that which is unseen because we see kind of like the, the echoes or the, the shadows of the subatomic particles. We start to see the impact of that which is unseen in someone else's life. We start to see the result of it. We say, wow, there's something there. I can't see it, but there is something there. There is something present. And so brilliantly the pastor now begins to lead us through the faith of others. And he does it for this purpose, that we might see the unseen. And with them, join in being a people of faith. So we come to the first portrait of this great hall of faith. And the third thing that we learn about faith this morning. First, we learn that faith is the substantive foundation of hope. You don't have hope without it. And by the way, hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Secondly, we see that faith is proof of the unseen. Thirdly, and we're going to work this one out. Faith is pleasing God. Faith is pleasing God. That is, to me, the most practical definition of faith that I can give you. Faith is... How do I... How do I Faith. How do I have faith? How do I do faith? How do I, you know, express faith? Faith is pleasing God. Seems a simple concept on the surface, but we got to break it down. So take a look at Abel, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And God does. Before we get to Abel, actually, God asked the question, why does he skip Adam and Eve? Why does he go to their second born? And, and they get no mention. Adam and Eve. No mention in the great hall of faith. Man, they walked with God in the garden. They knew God. Yeah. But they didn't trust Him. They saw and did not believe. They did not act with obedience. They didn't trust and obey, you could say. The first man and the first woman were the first examples of faithlessness. Now, I'm not saying that Adam and Eve didn't ultimately come to faith or understand faith. I'm not saying that you won't one day meet them in heaven or see them in the future. I don't know that. God alone does. But I know what they're a picture of and why their portraits are not hung up in the great hall of faith because they were faithless. But consider their youngest son. Oh, go all the way back. Keep your finger there and go back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and consider the story. And if you've ever known the stuff of sibling rivalry... It's a story that I enjoy being a younger brother myself until the end of the story and then I don't like it so much. (laughs) Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Watch this. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said, literally, check this out, I have gotten a man-child with the Lord. That's what is literally said there. Not with the help of the Lord, but with the Lord. Eve, I believe... It's just me. I believe that Eve thought Cain was the answer to the failures. That Cain was the miraculous seed. Remember what God said back in Genesis chapter 3 as He's delivering the curses? He says, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the devil, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. And I think Eve thought that when she got pregnant, this is the answer to all of our problems. This is our Savior. This is the one. I've gotten a man-child with the Lord. Didn't turn out so good, did it? Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Note this as we look at it. There is no difference in value between the two. 
between shepherding sheep or tilling the ground. Both are valuable uh, work. Both are, are legitimate on this earth. To be a shepherd or a farmer, one is not above the other. Verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And those of you who remember the Smothers Brothers... You could almost hear Cain saying, Dad always did like you more. (laughs) Sibling rivalry. The parent likes the the younger more than the older. It's not fair. It's not right. But the Bible tells us in Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. So you can wipe that one right off the list. This had nothing to do with God liking Abel more than he liked Cain. There's no partiality. God is perfect in His judgment, absolutely righteous and true. Okay, then why was Abel's offering acceptable and not Cain's? If tilling the soil is as legitimate as tending the flocks, then why the one over the other? And the difference was faith. It was faith. This is something unseen in Genesis 4. Well, faith is unseen, or it's in the unseen. It's something that becomes a reality to us, even as we read about Abel in Hebrews chapter 11. The difference was faith. Abel came to God with faith. Abel sacrificed, we note this, the first and best of his flock. Cain brought a basket of fruit. Abel's sacrifice exemplified trust because he gave the best. And so in so doing, he trusted God to provide for the rest of the tending of the sheep. Cain's offering exemplified work. I mean, let that one sit for a minute. Abel had trust. Cain did the work. Cain brought up the fruit of the ground. Sleeves rolled up the hard work of his labor. He brought it in here. Look what I've done to give you God. Abel's sacrifice thanked God for his blessings. Again, because he gave the first and best. Cain's offering, you might say, congratulated Cain for his labor. Look at what I've got for you. Abel's sacrifice, get this, Abel's sacrifice to please God. Cain's sacrifice to please Cain. And in this we begin to see Abel came in faith and Cain came in flesh. And the distinction is deep and severe. The difference made by faith in a life is is not so subtle. How many of us truly want to please God? How many want to please God? Show of hands. How many want to please God? Okay. Now, not a show of hands. Keep them down. How many of us offer Him the first and best of what He's given us? This is where it gets tough. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where faith gets absolutely practical. Do we bring Him the first and the best in our offerings to Him? Or do we bring Him more the equivalent of a basket of fruit from the back of the drawer? The leftovers, if you will. If I have enough this month, I'll put something in the offering. Jesus understood something about money. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I'm not talking about money because I want to see a big giving morning at the bridge. And I will repeat what I've said many, many times, and sometimes I think our finance team doesn't like me to say this. I'm kidding. They're with me on this. The bottom line in giving is that you give in faith. And if that means you don't give here, great. Give somewhere else. It has nothing to do with the Bridge Christian Fellowship. It has everything to do with your heart and you approaching God. So give to Him. But the encouragement here, and, and this is impressed throughout the Scriptures, don't give Him the leftovers. Give Him the first and the best because that is pleasing to Him. Not the money, but the stuff of the heart. Where is your heart when you approach God at the time to offer? 
Abel gave the firstlings of his flock, the best he had to give. Man, can you imagine that? The, the, the time and the energy and the, and the love and the, and the tenderness that went into raising these sheep, but to realize, oh, this one, this is the cream of the crop. This is the best that I've got. I'm giving it to God. And that's the attitude of faith because faith pleases God. Not self. Faith looks to do that. Always desires to bring first and best because by faith, we know it all came from Him anyway. The remarkable thing is that He allows us, encourages us to keep 90% of what He's given us. We know, James says 1.17, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And we all can say a hearty amen to that. Every good thing in my life comes from God. Every perfect gift is from above. And then it comes time to sit down and decide how I'm going to respond to God. And the question is, am I giving Him first and best? By the way, it really wasn't the content of the offering that mattered most. One of the things I've shared before that I love about tithing is it's completely fair across the board. You know, if you made ten bucks, you give one. If you made a million, you give ten percent of a million. (laughs) Because I'm not going to take a, you know, blind stab at the number. I know. Mr. Money. (laughs) The point is not the amount. That the person who made $10 and gives one has given exactly, in God's eyes, the same amount as the person who's given the $100,000. No difference. It's not the content of the offering. It's the content of the heart. It's what the heart's doing. Remember the heart? The heart that we just realized He gave us fresh and new. It's not the old heart that's beaten in this body anymore. It's not the old spirit. It's not the old man who protected everything carefully because I had to make sure and provide for myself. No, it's the new man. It's the new woman who trusts in Jesus. And who hears David say in Psalm 51.16, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So I'll tell you something else. You can bring a tithe to the Lord, but if your heart is not in the right place, keep it at home. Because it means nothing. It is a matter of faith. Faith pleases God. And so this morning, ask yourself, how does what I offer to God reflect my heart toward God? Faith desires to please Him, not to preserve the work of our labor. Last thing about Abel, and this is fascinating to me, is by faith, He still speaks. Note that. Back in Hebrews 11, verse 4, And through faith, though He is dead, He still speaks. You just can't shut this guy up. He's dead. But by faith still speaking. What does that mean? Well, some think, well, that's just, you know, that's his example of faith lives on. Lame. It's not what he's saying. It's not that, you know, we look at Abel and see his faith in offering to God and go, oh, well, that impacts me, therefore his faith is still speaking to me. No, that's not what he's saying. It's far more intense than that. The pastor is recalling the tragic end of the story of Cain and Abel where God says in Genesis 4.10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In other words, by faith, Abel is still crying for justice. Abel still believes, to this day, still believes in vindication. Still believes that the life that was ripped from him will be restored to him He still has faith that God will be just. Kind of like those martyrs of the tribulation that we read about in Revelation 6 verse 9. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out. These are dead people now. They have died. They have been martyred. But their voices still cry out by faith, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I love the tenderness here. There was given to each one of them a white robe. 
And they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. I'm telling you this, my friends, faith trusts God even in death. And you could say, well, of course, because Abel is with God. So of course he would trust God because he's with God. Yes, but faith again isn't seeing, it's trusting. Faith has nothing to do with whether or not you see God in this moment with your eyeballs. I could say to you, yes, Abel does. Abel sees God right now. He's in the presence of the Lord. I I don't see him, at least by my physical eyes, my physical eyesight. I don't see him, and yet my trust and Abel's trust can be exactly the same. Our faith is the same because it is about trust. It's confidence in the character of God. It's being convicted of His promises as was Jesus. Who before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke twenty two forty two said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. That is the ultimate faith statement. The ultimate statement of trust. Not what I want, Father, but what you want. Not my will, but yours. It's Jesus crying out with a loud voice from the cross. Luke twenty three forty six. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Quoting Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you in the moment of his death. I trust you. And then he said it is finished. How do we know this is what the pastor meant? That Abel still is trusting God for his vindication, for his justice? Well, we know because of chapter 12, verse 24, which says, We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What does the blood of Abel speak? Justice. What does the blood of Jesus speak? Mercy. What does the blood of Abel speak? The blood of Abel cries out, Vindicate me, Lord! The blood of Jesus cries out, Show them grace, Father. It is a better blood. But Abel is still speaking. Still crying out in faith. But in Jesus' death, oh man, there is vindication for all who have been wronged. For all who trust in Him, going all the way back to Abel. That Abel was vindicated at the cross by the work of Jesus Christ. Well, then there's Enoch. Second example here, who by faith bypassed death. I love Enoch. By faith, verse 5, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, Genesis 5.24, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, this is all really we get of him. All the way back in Genesis 5, we read of Enoch. But all you learn about him is two things. One, that he's the father of Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived. Methuselah's name is interesting. It means in his death it will come. And of course, right after Methuselah died came the flood. So there was something prophetic at work, Enoch being a prophet. But we wouldn't, if you just read Genesis 5, you might not pick that up. All you see really is he's Methuselah's dad, and he was taken up. He was not found because God took him up. You know? You hear the wife saying, Enoch, dinner! Enoch? And then she says to her son, Hey, meth lab, will you go find your father? (laughs) That's really a bad naming there, isn't it? You know? I don't see these are the things that don't find their way into the notes. As the study goes on, they pop into my head and go, no, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Methuselah comes back home, Mom, I don't know, we've looked all over, he's just not here. And the Bible tells him, well, that's because he went home with God. God took him up. We learn from Jude, however, that this Enoch was a pivotal end times prophet. Which is so marvelous because... Of all the end time prophets in the Bible, he is one of the most significant, if not the most significant, and yet he was the earliest one to speak. 
So all the way back to the beginning, from the seventh generation of Adam, Enoch was a prophet. He prophesied the flood. Even in the naming of his son Methuselah, in his death it will come and here comes the flood. And so there was warning way back before the flood through Enoch the prophet. But Enoch prophesied much more than that. Enoch prophesied, Jude 14 tells us, in the seventh generation from Adam, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. The second coming of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Even before the first coming. In fact, 3,400 years before the first coming, he's prophesying already of the second coming that would be at least 5,400 years later. This end times prophet named Enoch. And marvelously, he himself was a living prophecy of the rapture of the church. Early on in Scripture, God gives us insight, a picture, a portrait on the wall of the hall of faith of this man, Enoch, who was no more because God took him. He just went home to be with the Lord. Enoch walked with God and he was not. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And all the way back to Enoch we get that picture of a man living who just goes home. Was not found. Nobody left behind. He just went. By the way, the the interesting use of the word here, taken up in verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up. And then says God took him up. And then says after his that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Three times the same word is used. It's metatithomai. It's not harpazo. Harpazo is the word that we that's translated in the Latin, it's raptus, translated into English to catch up or rapture. And so 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, We who are alive and remain at the time of the second, the beginning of the second coming of Jesus, at the time we'll be caught up to Him. We will meet the Lord in the air. And that's harpazo. But this is metatithomai. Interesting word. It's a different word. It means literally, if you're talking about language, it means translated. It's like translating the Greek into the English so Enoch was translated from the physical to the ultimate eternal to the spiritual. It also, if you are using it as a musical word, metatithomai means transposed. So you're taking it from one key to another. Low key, high key. (laughs) One key to another, he has been translated, changed, transposed, taken up. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. You could say we're going to be translated into a new language. We're going to be transposed into a new new musical score. Now listen, because people ask the question, why are there some, you Christians, you pre-trib weirdos, you rapture nuts, those of you who believe that crazy left-behind stuff, what, do you just think that you're so good? The dead and alive in Christ get to be caught up because of Christian exceptionalism? Is that the deal? No. No. Why was Enoch taken up? He was taken up because before he was taken up, he obtained the witness that he was pleasing to God. He was just pleasing to God. Romans 8 verse 8 tells us those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. I told you, point number three, faith is pleasing God. That is to say, when I say, Lord, I trust you, He says, now you're speaking my language. Now you're speaking a translation that I understand. Faith is pleasing God. I I trust you. Listen, you will never please God by the sweat of your brow. You will never please God uh, by lifting yourself up. You're not going to be caught up by your bootstraps. I've tried. You know, in in an attempt to to, uh, uh, rapture myself, 
It just doesn't work. Grab the bootstraps and pull all you want. You're not coming off the ground. I'm being silly, but gang, we live sometimes life thinking we've got to we've got to produce and do and till the ground. And we take pride in it. And we find that we're pleasing ourselves. And we're thinking, hey, we're 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 getting it together now. Even as a Christian, I can start to think, hey, I'm I'm having a pretty righteous week. Dude, I'm righteous. And the truth is, that's that's not pleasing to God. All of my work, all my effort, all my labor. No, the whole the only hope to being pleasing to God is to trust Him. You see, all of our work, and, and this this goes to an understanding of the word pleasing. All of our work tends to be about appeasing or placating or pacifying. So I used to do that as a kid with my parents, do my Saturday chores so then I could go out Saturday night and do what I wanted to do. And I knew they didn't want me to go out, but if I really worked hard through the day and made them pleased, then I could get what I wanted. That's not what we're talking about when we say faith is pleasing God. Faith is simply pleasing to God, but faith is trusting Him, which again then pleases Him. And without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And this is absolutely key. And this is where we'll end, but dial into this. We can't please God without faith. Can't do it. The only way to please Him, and He he boils it down to two things for us. The only way to please Him is to come to Him, number one, believing that He is. What does that mean? Moses came up the side of the mountain to him. Took off his shoes because God said this is holy ground. And in the conversation as God says, I want you to go and deliver my people. I want you to go back to them. Moses is coming up with all kinds of excuses. He's uncertain. He's unsure. But remember this conversation. He said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. And I'll say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is His name? What shall I say to them? And you know, Moses is thinking. He grew up in Egypt. He knows all the gods in Egypt. He knows all the many names. And if he shows up and just says, Hey, God of your fathers has sent me to you, they're going to ask who that is because a good Hebrew is going to go, Who are you coming in the name of? Ra? You coming in the name of one of those Egyptian gods? We will not follow you. Moses knows this. Moses says, Who do I tell them sent me? Well, you know, God said to Moses, Yahweh. Translated, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What does this mean? The only way you can please God is you please Him by coming to Him, believing that He is. Believing in the I am. Which means faith isn't looking to the past. It's not putting off to the future. Faith is in God who is always now. Faith is about the immediate. This moment. The I am. He's I am and He would like you to join Him. I am. And so when life is falling apart right now, guess what? I am. It's not, oh, I'm looking back at the glory days of the old barn. That would be He was. He is I am. It's not looking ahead to what He's going to do next year. Holding out hope that, wow, life's terrible now, but maybe, somehow, someday, it'll get better. And God says, forget about that. Believe in Me now. Faith is coming to Him. It's believing Him. Coming to Him, believing that He is. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's always the same. So you know He's not going to change. Do you believe Him right now? Do you have faith in Jesus right now? That pleases Him. You must come to Him right now, believing that He is right now, I am, and believing, secondly, and this has always fascinated me, that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. 
Well, now why is that important as a part of pleasing God? The word seek here implies a diligent seeking. In fact, the King James even adds the word diligent in there. Who comes to him and diligently seeks him. It's, it's like someone hunting for a, a great treasure. You're diligent because you, you know, get this, you know the reward of the seeking is the joy of the finding. And so when he says you must come to him believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, I would underline the word him because he is the joy of the finding. He is the reward for the seeker. Once again, not only is it faith in the I am, but it's in the faith in the I am who is my reward. He's what it's all about. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming and my reward is with me. You know why? Because it's Him. Because He is the reward. Now, I happen to believe He's going to dole out some other rewards as well. You know? But He is the reward. He said back in Genesis 15.1, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Your reward is me. Not, not me, Pastor Rick. Don't, don't get confused. Psalm 43, verse 3, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Because He's the reward. And David writes, And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. That's a pleasing faith because that is, is lifting up the fame of God. The glory of God who is our great reward. Psalm 105 verse 3, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. Jeremiah 29 verse 13, He says, Yes, you will seek Me and you will find Me when you search for Me. With all your heart. When we began, I listed a number of groups in this great hall of faith. And the last group that I said, I just called one more distinctive group. It's another anonymous group that you don't see named in here, but they're here. Did you notice them? Did you see them? Listen one more time. They're right there in verse 3. He says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, we. Trust God and you will find your portrait hanging in the great hall of faith. Right alongside Abel and Enoch. Right alongside Noah, Moses, Abraham, the great patriarchs alongside all of these people of faith, your portrait in the Great Hall. And you might say, I didn't do anything. Yesterday, well, I got a text from Hannah saying, are you watching the Olympics? And I'm like in the middle of a fierce Super Smash Brothers battle with my kids. No, I'm not watching the Olympics. I'm trying to win my own gold here, you know. And she said, i, I got to show you this. And she sent me a, a picture of the snowboarding gold. I don't know if you heard about this, but 17 years old. A 17-year-old kid from the United States won the gold in the snowboarding competition for the Winter Olympics. Wow. So I'm talking about that. Hayden comes up the stairs and he looks at me and he goes, he goes, what are you guys talking about? Yeah, 17-year-old. And I held up the picture and Hayden goes, a 17-year-old won the gold? And he shook his head walking down the stairs and he said, I haven't done nothing. <laughs> nothing I'm 21 years old I'm like hey your life's before you I'm 53 and I haven't done nothing I won the best camper award in one year that was the best I've got to show it yielded a great conversation because you know what no one's going to stand before God with a gold medal and say see what I did see what I did I was famous for this the only fame that matters is his And the way you end up finding your portrait hanging in the great hall of faith is very simply, do you trust Him? That's it. Do you trust Him? That's our entrance into the great hall of faith. It is predicated on that one thing, trusting Jesus Christ. 
Paul said in Romans 10, verse 10, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10.13. Romans 10.17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing, literally hearing, by the word Christ. Now your Bible will translate that, hearing by the word of Christ. But it's not. It's hearing by the word Christ. The word Christ. The word Christ. The word that created the worlds. The Word that is unseen and yet we have faith in Him. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word, Christ, and that pleases Him. When your faith is simply in Him. And by the way, when it comes to pleasing God, if you trust Him, you're just going to want to please Him. And the more you please Him, the more you're going to trust Him. And that's how faith works. Father, we pray again, increase our faith. Build up, strengthen. That faith, perhaps, which is weak this morning, that faith that is struggling, because of all the seen things. You know, Father, that's, that's I think, one of our biggest problems is the seen stuff gets in our way. The things we see going on in the world, the things we see in our families, the physical stuff that's upsetting or disconcerting or worrying, And Father, we see these things like Peter seeing the waves and we take our eyes off You. So when I pray, increase our faith, I pray, Father, increase our love of that which is unseen. Increase our desire simply to be people who are pleasing to You. For I do find, Lord, the more that I desire to please You, the less the the seen stuff gets in my way. Oh, help us to see You, Jesus. Help us, as the author says, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And we recognize this is something, Holy Father, that You do. Something, Spirit, that You work. So we invite You to come now and work among us and increase faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.